Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 332 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Richard K. Morgan. He's the author of the fantasy series A Land Fit for Heroes, and his debut novel Altered Carbon has been adapted into a Netflix original series, which we reviewed back in episode 295. He's also written scripts for graphic novels such as Black Widow Homecoming and video games such as Crisis 2. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel Thin Air, a sequel to his 2007 novel Black Man. And now here's our interview with Richard K. Morgan. All right, so we're here with Richard K. Morgan. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Sorry to arrive late. (laughs) Okay, so your new book is called Thin Air, and in the acknowledgments, you say that the book is dedicated in part to, quote, all of you who wanted and waited for me to write more SF, thank you for your voices. They've made all the difference. Yeah, that's right. Could you just expand on that and say why you decided to write more SF now and what was involved with that decision? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really a, a, you know, a turnabout decision or anything. It was, it was, it was in the grand scheme of things, what was always going to happen because I, way back when, a long time ago now, I don't like to think about how many years ago it was. I signed up with my UK publishers to do, uh, took for a six book deal and that, that was going to be three science fiction novels and three fantasy novels. And, uh, and then my New York publishers, Del Rey, they signed on for the three fantasy and for two of the uh, science fiction novels. And the, the idea, the original plan was, you know, that we were all on the same page with this, was that I would write them alternately. So I dip, I do a fantasy novel, then I come back to SF, then I go back to fantasy, go back to SF and so on. That was, you know, I, I should have known at the time. I should, I was a bit naive to think it would pan out that way. Uh, what happened was the first fantasy novel that still remains came out and it got quite, you know, there was, was quite a buzz about it. It was a little bit different. It was, it was something a little, a little unusual. And, uh, yeah, it, it made a bestseller list over here, hit the independent, um, bestseller list and, and was generally, you know, that was well received. There was a lot of good buzz. So my, my editor turned around to me and said, Oh, look, would you mind terribly just doing all three fantasy novels in a row? And I, I didn't really mind because I was on a roll with this one anyway. I was kind of having fun with the new territory. But, uh, that obviously meant that instead of the next SF book coming out, you know, a couple of years later, that was shoving it back to a good five or six years later. Uh, and then what happened was that also I got derailed along the way a bit. So the fantasy novels took longer to produce than expected. I was, I, I had a child late in life, became a dad. So that, that took, took, you know, sort of flattened me for a while. Uh, I was moonlighting in the games industry for a while as well, uh, moved house a couple of times, uh, for, from one end of the country to the other with, with all of the sort of differential that involved. And so what with one thing and another, I ended up spending the best part of a decade writing this fantasy trilogy. And the, fan, the, the science fiction just got left behind. It got left behind in the wash. Uh, it was always my intention to come back. And in fact, this book, Thin Air, has had some of the groundworks being laid for the best part of a decade as well. It's just it has taken a long time to come back around. It's just, just the way it worked out. So when you say thank you for your voices, they've made all the difference. What kind of comments from readers are you thinking of? Yeah, just the fact that, you know, whether people like the fantasy or not, and I mean, there were people who didn't, uh, they were still saying, oh, you know, I really miss the original Richard Morgan, the altered carbon voice, you know, the, the, the way those were written. Because they were written very consciously in a, you know, first person, uh, discursive, uh, noir style, very much you know, indebted to the to the Chandler and Hammett style of, of writing. And I've moved some the goalposts somewhat since then. 
And yeah, I think a lot of people were like, oh, wanted me to go back and do some more of that. And it's very, it's always nice when somebody is saying to you, oh, you know, please could we have some more of this? So yeah, that, that kind of spurred me on, if you like. So when I got back into the, the harness and started writing first person, then discursive again, went back to the kind of noir detective themes and, and, uh, and narrative arches and so forth. All of that. Uh, it was really nice to know that there was already um, a cohort out there sort of cheering me on saying, yeah, yeah, come on, this is what we want, this is what we want. Uh, you know, that was that was a nice feeling. That, that certainly sort of kept me warm on days when things weren't going that well. Well, right. Speaking of that, actually, in the acknowledgments as well, you say, endless thanks as always to Virginia Cottonelli and Daniel Morgan Cottonelli for cohabitating with the creature in the attic while he flailed and raged and got this book down on the page. Yeah. So um, what was the flailing and raging? Oh, I'm just, I'm just not a very sociable person when I'm writing. You know, <laughs> it's just one of those things. Uh, I, I tend to disappear into that. I mean, I, I'm, I got into this right, you know, if you go right, wind right back to when I started wanting to be a writer, I got into this because I wanted to write the books that no one else was writing for me. And so for me, it's all about actually inhabiting the space and, and, you know, and, and living the fiction. And you can't do that and operate effectively in the real world at the same time. So you, you end up disconnected. You end up a little bit weird for, for people who are living in the real world. And yeah, it's always a bit of a trip. <laughs> and, you know, ideally people should, you know, I, I think it's, it's not much fun being either married to or related to a writer when he's, when he's on the boil. So, uh, yeah. so this book, Thin Air, did it involve just a, a standard amount of flailing and raging or did it involve more than a standard amount of flailing and raging? Oh, about standard, I'd say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so, yeah, so why don't you tell us about the book? It's set on Mars. You want to say why you uh, wanted to set a book on Mars? <laughs> Uh, again, unfinished business, really. I wrote a book called Black Man back in 2007. Uh, came out in the US under the title 13. And, uh, the, the, the universe that took place in, there was a colony on Mars, but I, I, the story took place on Earth and the Mars colony was just part of the backdrop. It was part of the backstory of the, of the protagonist and, and it tied into a lot of the geopolitics of the world as we encounter it in that book. And it was always in my mind that I, because there were some flashback scenes on Mars, but very limited. And I, I was always aware of the fact that I'd sort of opened this can of worms and then just left it sitting there in the backdrop. So I kind of thought, yeah, I, I really should go back and actually do something on Mars, take the, the very vague structure that I've painted in there, the, the sort of the sketch of what the colony is like, and then really do deploy, unpack that and do something with it. So that was, that was kind of sitting there for a while. And, um, yeah, also, I don't know, I, in much the same way as when I wrote the fantasy trilogy, I was quite interested in pulling apart the tropes and the assumptions. I think similarly, there are a whole bunch of sort of standard issue con concepts and, and, and tropes and, you know, stereotypical ideas going round about Mars, about it being the high frontier, about it being, uh, you know, the, where we're going next and so forth. And I just wanted to, and, and plus, you know, fiction about Mars is full of, plucky independent movements on Mars, independence movements on Mars, you know, rallying against an oppressive Earth overlordship and, and so forth. And I wanted to pull that apart and, and kind of provide it, provide a slightly more complicated vision to, to, to sort of shade things with what we, we know about the ways human societies work today. So an awful lot of science fiction in the past, especially colonial science fiction, has been written on the template of you know, the kind of the Napoleonic Wars, the American War of Independence, the, there's this sort of buccaneering space pirates type 
vibe to it. And it's become very clear in the, well, not even in the recent years, but in, 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 you know, the last couple of decades, it's become very clear that that is not how we're going into space. Uh, so I was interested in, well, let's, let's take the situation we have now and let's look at what that would like if we could extrapolate and, you know, colonize other planets. How are things going to pan out? Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, I was very keen to get to Mars and, you know, tear things up, I guess. So when you said that you want to critique the idea that Mars is where we're going next, do you think that Mars is not where we're going next or do you? No, no, no. I, th I think, I think we're going there, but I think the idea that it's going to be some sort of reprise of the American frontier, you know, that this is, this is where men will go and test themselves against the, the cutting edge of, of, uh, of human progress and the, the sort of the expansion of the human sphere. I mean, that isn't what it's going to be like at all. As, as I think it was um, SM Sterling said, you know, Mars is about a million times more hostile than the Gobi Desert. Uh, I don't see anyone volunteering to colonize the Gobi Desert. So what the big, what's the big deal with Mars? Uh, yeah. And I think there's an enormous amount of romanticism around the idea of a colony on Mars. And, uh, you know, romanticism is all right. I mean, it often acts as quite useful rocket fuel, but I think we've all grown up a bit and I, I think we deserve a slightly more grown up vision of, of what that might pan out like. Well, I mean, if you talk to somebody like Elon Musk, I think he would say that we need settlements on Mars and other you know, places outside Earth. However, inhospitable they may be because if something happens to the Earth, uh, humanity needs to be a multiplanetary species to hedge against uh, you know, a calamity. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. But that is, I mean, that, that he's talking, you know, levels of technology and, uh, and advance that are still a very long way away. We, we don't have the wherewithal to, to create self-sufficiency on Mars at this stage. Uh, and also, I think there's something slightly, slightly worrying about this. It's almost like we're taking the attitude of, hey, you know, let's set up on Mars because then we won't have to worry too much about what happens back on Earth. As if, you know, the, the billions of people actually living on Earth will, will then become disposable because, well, we've got these other humans on another planet. So we can kind of forget about this other one here. And I think, you know, for the, for, for a very considerable time to come, Earth really is all we're going to have in terms of a, a comfortable biosphere in which, you know, we, we evolved as a species and we're comfortable as a species. And while I don't doubt that our space going technology is going to come on by leaps and bounds, I think most of the stuff that we're going to do will probably end up being done automatically. I mean, our, our AI is also coming on by leaps and bounds. And you reach the point where you're asking the question, why are we going? Uh, you know, what is the deal here? Why, rather than sit down and apply ourselves with the technology that we have, apply ourselves to solving the problems that we have here on Earth. Why is it that we're so set upon putting a flag on this other planet and going there and undergoing all these incredible hardships to scrape a living in these very, very limited uh, environs? Uh, you know, and kind of shake the dust of Earth off our feet. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel like a very grown up vision. Uh, you know, the vision should be, yeah, sure, let's go. Let's see what's out there. Let's see what we can make of that. But at the same time, we shouldn't be fouling our own nest. We should be concerned, you know, for the foreseeable future, the home of the human race is on Earth. And that, that I think once once to a lot of minds and attention start turning away from that, uh, it's, it's bad news for Earth. I mean, it's bad news for Earth, even the way things are at the moment. But the idea that we suddenly start thinking in terms of, oh, hey, well, we can always go to Mars instead. I think that's a this is dangerous ground, you know. I, I I find it very worrying. And while I've got an immense amount of respect for what Musk has achieved in technical terms, in technological terms, 
I don't think he has a very grown up view of, of how the world works and how human beings work. Uh, and, and I think we need, you know, grayer heads, if you like. I think we need people who, with a, with a bit more, um, a bit more thought and a bit, uh, a bit more balance to their vision. Uh, because otherwise, I say, yeah, we're going to sign ourselves up for a kind of rocket ship adventure that actually has no bottom, uh, and we, you know, that's that's not that's not going to work. Uh, you know, we, you can't ship all the billions of people who live on Earth off to another planet. That's just not feasible right now, and I don't see it being feasible for at least a century to come, possibly a, uh, several centuries. So, the settlement on Mars that you describe in thin air—do you see that as how as sort of? Uh, how you would expect things to develop, or is that driven more by the uh, uh, requirements of the plot for the kind of story that you wanted to tell? I, I think it's. I think it's more than anything because I, I was interested. I mean, I you know, I come back to science fiction, and what I really wanted to do was have some fun with it and tell you know a, a good story and have go back to that noir vibe and really sort of pick up on on the pulse that the that the Kovach books, for example, had had. And so I wasn't too worried about getting it absolutely right. Um, but I was. It was like okay, let's assume. Here, let's assume a couple of, uh, of major leaps in, in useful technology that, that we could use in colonization. Let's see what happens. And of course, what happens is pretty unpleasant because it, it, it's not this uh, sort of bright, shiny vision that is being bandied about because it never is. That's not how things work. You know, just as the American frontier was no picnic, uh, any, you know, if we go to Mars, especially if we go to Mars in the new Gingrich mold of, hey, let's set up private property on Mars. Let's, parcel the land out and hand it out to developers and uh, you know do all of these things you know in much the same way as the american frontier was was um was taken over i can't see that doing i can't see that coming out well for anybody really except for you know a handful of extremely wealthy individuals and, and corporations well so why don't you just for our listeners describe the settlement on mars that exists in the book it's it's in this val it's in the vals marineris and there's the um yeah what 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 we what we're presupposing is that there there've been some very very large advances in in um monomolecular technology and the technology of creating um ultra thin screens basically and one of the things that this has enabled them to do is to float a bunch of uh of, of um, high-tech material atop a cushion of air in the valles marinaris in other words just fill it up so that we have earth earth densities of atmosphere in the valley and then you float this stuff on top and it acts rather like a cloud cover it act, it, it keeps in the heat it keeps in the a lot of the air pressure uh, and it operates to some extent like a biosphere. There's, there's, there are um, chemical reactions going on in these these sheets of material that are helping basically to keep the valley warm. Uh, and then, you know, we live under that. Uh, so you've got uh, a few million people living under that. There, there's a, a major center of population called Bradbury, which is, which is, you know, the, the metropolis, if you like. And then you've got outlying districts with smaller provincial uh, towns and centers of population. And then you've got beyond that, you've got a kind of wilderness, wilderness areas that are referred to generally as the uplands. And the uplands are, are very much like the American West in the sense that they are pretty lawless, uh, very few people out there and those who are out there are very self-sufficient. Uh, and but then, but the whole thing has reached a kind of stasis because the, the corporate interests that have set this up and got it running, they're no longer interested in the idea of terraforming the whole planet because what they've got there ticks along very nicely. Thank you. It turns in a major profit. Uh, all of the corporate bodies are happy. Uh, pe- the people who are get at the top are getting rich. Why would they bother to expand any further? And so there's a sense very much throughout the book of a fallen dream. 
you know, the idea that what you could refer to, I guess, as the sort of the Carl Sagan vision of a sort of humanistic universalism being what the force that uh, that goes out and colonizes other planets and, and expands off the off Earth. Instead of that, you've got this rapacious corporate driven and um system that is basically controlled by yet yeah, very rich individuals and uh, and very and very wealthy corporate bodies and everyone else just scrabbles along and survives as best they can we'll talk about to the title thin air because there's that's a title that takes on multiple valences as the book progresses yeah i mean thin air obviously because there is the issue of, of Martian air being very thin, uh, and most of the planet's surface hasn't been terraformed, so it is still super thin air. Uh, and there are parts of the valley where, where the depth of the valley is not as much as it, as it is in the center, uh, where again, the air is, is thinner. So there's that. There's also the fact that it's about, uh, people vanishing. Uh, initially somebody vanishes, a, a Martian citizen, and then an investigation begins into that, and then the, the investigating officer who's supposed to be following that up, she vanishes as well. So there is that sense also of, of uh, you know, people vanishing into thin air. But there's also the sense of what is it that holds up ventures like this? What is it that keeps, you know, a, a, a huge rapacious in this case, but huge corporate vision rolling. Uh, and of course, that again is very much thin air. It, it's, you know, we, the, the myths of, you know, what we choose to believe in, these, these myths are actually quite insubstantial. And, and, uh, there's a quote from, uh, Noah Yuval Hariri at the beginning of the book where he says that, uh, you know, myths, myths fade once people stop believing in them. And so there is also this idea that you can build an awful lot, uh, especially in, in, High, you know, in capital and financial terms, you can build an awful lot on what is very little more than just myth and faith. Uh, but woe betide you on the day that people start to lose their faith and start to sort of stop taking the myth seriously. Because when that happens, then these structures just shudder and collapse, or they can do. And obviously, that's catastrophic for anyone who happens to be standing nearby. Well, right. You mentioned that the largest settlement is called Bradbury, and so that yeah. sp speaks to the the role of myths or stories in this, yeah. um, you know, uh, settlement effort. And you have uh, there's settlements called Wells and Burroughs as well. These sort of great science fiction authors who set stories on Mars. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's you know, in the end, as I say, we're, I'm plowing a furrow here that's been plowed before. So it's nice to. I think it's always nice to remember the people who came before and uh, say so. Give, giving giving the the capital city Bradbury's name was was a, a must for me. It was a you know, it was a big deal because I think Bradbury might, may not have been amongst the most scientific of the the, the sort of mythologizers for Mars, but I think the guy had a, an amazing soul and and a sort of a. a a sense of humanity and uh, i could like to think that's sort of somehow embedded in in the name of that city even if that city is is pretty much a hellhole <laughs> I, I mean are, are those authors bradbury wells and burroughs um particular favorites of yours when it comes to mars fiction or are those just sort of the best known that you think that oh, people would actually wells, name? yeah wells and burroughs not so much uh wells and burroughs simply because they are obviously name checks they, they're they're part of the the the, the, the sort of the, I don't know, the, the archaeological structure, I guess, of, of, of science fiction written about Mars. But Bradbury, no, I have a soft spot for Bradbury. I think he was a, a, a fantastic writer in many, many ways. Uh, and so, yeah, that, I mean, the Altered Carbon books, again, the, the, the settlement on Mars there is also called Bradbury. It doesn't get much mentioned because we never go to Mars in those books, but 
there is the mention that that there is a city there called Bradbury. So it's uh, it's a sort of ongoing homage of, on on my part. Well, right, and there are a lot of other names in the book mentioned that really give the reader a sense of the culture of this place, or maybe the lack of culture. But you you have like Hayek Boulevard, Adam Smith County, Rand Junction, a lot of sort of free market libertarian. Influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, one of the things that frightens me about the the sort of the Musk. I don't want to blame Musk for everything, but he is emblematic, I think, of the you know the the dynamic. Is this sort of this idea of you know men of vision planting their flag and uh, say Newt Gingrich especially has been deeply involved in this idea that you know talking about actually talking about the logistics of private property on Mars, and I just. I imagine Carl Sagan, you know, sort of listening to him and kind of wrinkling his nose as he listens. Uh, it's like, man, this is, we're talking about the human species taking its first steps out into space. And what are you about? You want to lock it all down and sell it as, sell it off as, as uh, parcels of land. It's, um, there's something pretty pearls before swine about that whole thing. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, and I, I don't have any faith. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I'm I'm very much a convinced capitalist in the sense that I think capitalism is is an engine, and it's by far the least worst of all the systems of uh, economic systems that we've had a go at over um, over human history. So I, you know, it's here to stay, and I don't really have a problem with that. But what I do have a problem with is the 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 sort of the the rather the lunatic end of that, the Chicago school idiocy that takes the market and rather than seeing it as, as a useful mechanism, worships it as a god. Uh, you know, everything must be sacrificed to the market. And I, I don't know who it is who said it. It's, it's a well-known quote, but I'm not. it's not actually clear who said it. I think it was Vlaclav Havel who said it, that the market, you know, the market makes a fine servant, uh, but a pretty dubious master and an absolutely dreadful god. And, you know, that's very much where I come off as well. I think, you know, market mechanisms like any other, force that we harness very useful indeed uh but they have to be applied with with a modicum of intelligence and and humanity uh, and what we're seeing at the moment is the exact opposite of that we're seeing all of the all of the, uh, the chains coming off all of the all of the potential protections coming off it's like somebody basically building a very fast car and saying hell we don't need seatbelts or brakes or crumple zones or airbags or any of that shit uh, because hey no it's the internal combustion engine man that's what's driving everything don't get in its way uh you know it's dust uh you know fire is a useful thing but we still control it i don't see why the market had we have this weird kind of liberationism built around it the idea that the market should just be unleashed and anyone who happens to get crushed will tough shit that that's the way it works and I find that extremely worrying, and especially the idea that this is the thing that we want to take out into space with us and transplant onto other worlds, other you know, fresh starts, if you like. Um, I find, you know, I mean, I, I, I find it worrying how um, I don't know what the word is. Naive people seem to be. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any willingness to to take a you know, a slightly graded vision and to look at things and go, well, you know, this has some, some, some big payoffs and benefits, but let's have a look at some of the downsides and what we might do to, uh, to deal with those. Uh, you know, it's a kind of purity politics and I, I find that very scary. You know, it's funny you mentioned Newt Gingrich. I mean, in the book, there's a location called Gingrich Field, which features very prominently in the book. 
Yeah. Um, you, you, you were talking about his ideas for uh, privatizing Mars. I'm not too familiar with that. I mean, I do know that he's a big science fiction fan, and I know he wrote a book called Window of Opportunity with David Drake sort of laying out his vision for the future. Is that what you're referring to, or uh, are there other things? No, this is, I, I haven't read that. Uh, no, but I say I, I read quite a lot about the various, in, you know, the initiatives that there are as far as as far as this this idea of, of colonies on mars is concerned and yeah he features very widely he's been in a lot of working groups and so forth and clearly what he sees is uh, you know a transplant a kind of a, a, a taking a culture of the most rapacious of of republican right uh unfettered capitalism that in america taking that and kind of transplanting it out there and and just culturing it and let see let's see if it grows you know to try i think i think it's a kind of it's a kind of cultural imperialism in the sense that it's like right we're going to other planets that will happen because obviously we're developing the technology to be able to do this so i'm going to make damn sure that this cultural outlook is what gets there is that's the thing that lands um and I say I'm just staggered by the uh, what's the the lack of vision that that that, that uh, demonstrates. You know, the, the the idea that this extremely narrow concept of how human systems and human societies work uh, should be the thing that go that 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 is our initial footprint on on a new planet. Well, I mean, in the book, there's a movement called the Sacronites, which are described as either tech socialism or tech mutualism. Is that, do you think, more the model that you would um, endorse for settling? Oh, no, no, I, I, I wouldn't endorse those guys either. I'm a, I'm a fucking malcontent. I mean, I, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not, you know, as I said to you, I'm not a, you're not going to, you won't find me arguing, you won't find me in a crowd screaming smash capitalism, I think, you know, there's, there's a kind of infantile approach to things. But I think it's, these things are complicated and you cannot just slash through with really, really simplistic visions of how stuff should work and then expect it to work. Uh, and it doesn't. I mean, if you look at America, the state that America's in at the moment, it's a very, very, you know, very indicative case in point. You know, here is the, the most powerful nation on the planet, the most advanced nation on the planet, certainly. Uh, and it has an infrastructure system that's falling apart. Is you know seventy-seven thousand bridges that are potentially lethally dangerous, apparently, according to I think the Army Corps of Engineers. That was their survey, and we're talking about some time ago. This is a few years ago now. Um, you know, America. I think they haven't bought. A, America hasn't built a major power station in I don't know how many decades. There, you know, in a sense, there is for all the talk of dynamism. That dynamism is going on in the financial services industry, and in terms of actual dynamism, in terms of you know, infrastructure in terms of building roads, railways, perhaps again, Musk's hyperlink stuff like this. I get nothing, nothing against cutting edge technology in the service of, of, of a better world. But the point being that there is no will at a governmental level to think in those terms because there's a constant terror of doing anything that might require revenue because revenue requires taxes. And so instead you see uh, a ruling class, an oligarchy, prepared to slash taxes to the bone and then stand back and hope that, you know, some inspired guy like Elon Musk or a, a corporation like Apple will sort of take the reins and go and do this stuff. Uh, and I find that, I, I do find that very, very worrying because there's something missing there. There is, there is a sense of mission missing, a sense that, uh, you know, there is all this amazing tech becoming available and the state of technological advance is, is accelerating all the time. Uh, but where are the governmental initiatives to help with this? Where, where is the sense that we, 
governments like the United States, like like my own, like the British government, that we are astride this, that we are riding this technology into the future, you know, rather than just trying to, you know, scrape it and asset strip it and, and feed the cash back to our mates, because that seems to be what's happening at the moment. What do you make of this way that in the past year or two, Elon Musk has had both this just stunning technical success, but has also been very beleaguered as a public personality? Well, well, I don't want to, I mean, like I said, I don't want to bag on him because I think his his technological achievements have been quite remarkable, uh, you know, and I take my hat off in that sense. But it, it does appear that on the flip side of that, it does appear that he is basically just a bit of a dickhead. Uh, and I, you know, that's the problem with individuals because we are, we, you know, and that's why you can't have this messianic faith in one guy. You know, this guy is going to do it. This guy will take us to Mars. This guy put a car in orbit around Earth. It's that's not the vision. You know, it's like, yeah, what about the rest of it? The, the whole point is we should be acting in groups. We should be acting as nation states, as blocks, power blocks, as at, a, at an, an, in, an international level and at a species level as well. And I think this is something that Sagan used to talk about quite a lot, the fact that we need to start acting as a species, the, the challenges that face us are challenges that we will need to be taken up globally. It's not something that this one guy sitting in an office somewhere in California can, can take on. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to this idea that we need to cooperate more and work together as a species. But part of me does wonder, and especially after I read um, Elon, the biography of Elon Musk that came out a couple of years ago, uh, it, it did make me wonder if sometimes you just need a dickhead to get a Hyperloop built or something. Because, you know... Uh, no, but, but it isn't true, is it? The reason we need a dickhead to get a Hyperloop built is because we don't have the, the men of caliber in the places that we need them to be. I mean, if you look at... Most of the technology that has come out of America since the war came as a result of massive government investment and spending. And we're kind of living off the fat of that now. I mean, all of the technology we've, we've inherited was handed down because of that investment. Uh, but we've, we've just decided, oh, no, we don't need that anymore. And we've sort of cut the tree down and with, here's the log. And we've got these, these green shoots sprouting on it. And one of them's Elon Musk. And we're all kind of venerating, oh, wow, look at that. Doesn't he have green leaves? But I mean, the whole point is if you provide sufficient funding and you have men of caliber, both politically and, and also technologically, I mean, I'm talking, the, about the scientists and also the the project drivers and the you know the administrators the I say it, I mean the bureaucrats I'm not ashamed to say that word and the um, the politicians you need men of caliber in all of those posts to to, to drive these things forward uh, and we don't that's what what has happened is we have totally abandoned that that sense of vision um, and I just I say I, I I find it deeply deeply distressing that that, that we we've lost faith in our ability to act in, in large groups, to act in, in coordinated blocks, to, uh, you know, to get, to, to, to get things done at a, at a state level. Well, let me ask you about something that I, else that I suspect you may found, find distressing, which is the media. So uh, in the book, it says <laughs> it was the Valley's media cocktail specialty. Lazy ass journalism stripped down to sound bites and sanitized straws, just enough to scratch the viewing public's itch for input. Raw spectacle shoved in the blender, shorn of all useful context or depth, then spattered across the audience's collective face like an endless series of cum shots. Yep. Um, that's very vivid. Um is that I, I, I get the feeling that's not just how you feel about the media on Mars, but maybe no. 
<laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, I, I think, you know, the media has been falling on its fat face for quite some time now. And, you know, much though I deplore Trump with every fiber of my being, in a sense, the media has kind of earned him uh, because it, you know, and I'm, and I'm not talking just about Fox News here. I'm talking about the media generally. You know, the the the, the American, even the left liberal American media, rolled over and to let its tummy be tickled by the Bush administration. You know, was cheerleading for a war a war in Iraq, um, despite huge misgivings by you know people who who actually knew something about the situation. Uh, you know, and, uh, they now shake their heads dolefully and go, Oh, yes, we were misled. We should have been more critical. It's like, yeah, God damn it. You should have been more critical because your fucking job. Um, you know, and I think the media have been colossally lazy, uh, for too long now, uh, and happy to just sort of shift product. You know, the idea that the idea of the media as the fifth estate again seems to have largely gone out the window. Um, and, and, and it's reached its apogee here with, with this, this sort of anti-media frenzy that, that Trump is leading. Uh, but, you know, in a way, so much of the media have only themselves to blame for that because they were the ones who didn't take the principled stands when they needed to. Uh, again, it's a lack of gravitas. It's a lack of, it's a lack of understanding what the media should do and be. Uh, and instead we've turned into this kind of, um, infotainment, uh, plex. Which, which, yeah, uh, is, is quite frankly, I mean, it's corrosive. It's, it's not, you know, it's not just that it isn't doing its job. It's also corrosive of other aspects of society. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the media in the book, the media that you see on Mars, uh, the, the protagonist has an absolutely excoriating vision of, of who they are and as, to, as opposed to who they think they are. Um, yeah. And I'm, that is my sense here. I feel that, you know, there are, good people working in media and there is good media there is good journalism being done but there's so little of it and there's so little vision for it as well there is a there is a, a sort of a lack of interest in it because we're all caught up in this this uh, this sort of brightly colored media swirl where it's equally as important who won the great british bake off as it is what will happen to the country after brexit <laughs> I mean, what do you think? Because I, I, I feel like I see some countervailing trends to this uh, sort of soundbite, fl- uh, bright, shiny object media landscape where you have like podcasts or YouTube videos where people will watch an hour or two, uh, two hour long conversations or lectures, which obviously, you know, have a lot of context or depth to them. Or even with the um, a lot of the entertainment, like um, like the Alter Carbon Netflix series, you have these 10, you know, 10 episode long, very complex interwoven stories that it seems to me are, are are so much more complex and interesting and thoughtful than the serialized uh, TV shows that I grew up with, for example. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, it can't be, you know, it, it can't be a, a total downer. There are always, because the point is the same impulses that, that enabled, you know, the crusading journalism of, of the, of the Washington post uh, and the New York times in the 1970s, you know, those impulses are still out there. It's not like we're not creating a different kind of human being here. We, we still have that. Um, so, yeah, there are outlets. And, and plus, obviously, the technology is democratizing. It becomes a lot easier. You can set up a podcast with, with you know, not much more than a couple of hundred quid's worth of equipment. Um, and, yes, you can. You know, or there more are, or less in the case of this podcast. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. I don't, wasn't, didn't know what your, what your tech budget was, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, this stuff can exist, but I, I think, I mean, if I were to lay the, the, the blame in a single place, I would say that it is in, and, and I am going to blame America as a cultural 
um, matrix here again. Um, it, I, I think it's it's in this idea that there's you know there's not much to be said for education or sophistication. Uh, this idea that um, you know what's what's there's nothing wrong with being picture ignorant. You know, uh, you don't need to know anything more than, than you need to run a farm somewhere in Ohio. Uh, that has been, you know, that's been a, an outlook that has been massaged over the last several decades, uh, in the United States. It's been massaged similarly in the United Kingdom as well, uh, albeit it's a little bit different the, the angle of approach. But I mean, you know, recently over the last two years since that, since the Brexit vote, uh, we have heard countless politicians standing up and saying things like, I think the British people have had enough of experts. And it's like, yeah, really? I don't know. Next time I go to a doctor, I want a qualified doctor. I'm not going to ask my mate down the road. Uh, but there is this, this guy. And it's funny because I do think that it's in some ways, it does seem to be culturally Anglo-Saxon specific because it does seem to be the United States and Britain seem to do this very well. I go elsewhere in, in Europe and I don't find this kind of denigration of learning, this 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 idea that by definition if you're smart there's something wrong or weird about you. Um, and similarly I noticed, I mean I, I myself noticed over the years, the way that documentaries cease to be presented by, you know, educated scientists. Um, you know, like DeGrasse Tyson or Sagan or, or any of these guys, David Attenborough, any of these guys. And instead, you have a bunch of sort of zany personality types. And the, the, the general thrust of this has seemed to be we mustn't put anyone in front of the in front of the audience who they may feel threatened by because they're smarter than they are. Uh, we, we mustn't have anyone who makes them feel inadequate. We mustn't have anyone who will make it seem like this learning might not be gosh wow fun. Um, you know, and I say and I, that has that has been a, a notable decay that I've seen certainly in the programming on my, this side of the Atlantic as well. Uh, this sort of terror of sophistication, the terror of anybody telling you something who who is you know is clearly a specialist who knows their field. Uh, so if we're watching a documentary, we don't want to go, oh wow, I don't know anything about this. We, we we've got to be made to feel smart. We've got to be made to feel you know. Every time we have a commercial break, we have to start again from the beginning in case anybody missed something. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that dynamic as well. The first 10 minutes after the commercial break are spent recapping everything that happened in the previous segment. Uh, you know, it, it is this, this sort of, this feeling that we, we must dumb down because otherwise we'll lose the audience. Um, and I think that's the root of it because if you do that for long enough, you end up with, with a general populace who are susceptible to stupid messages and don't really want to listen to anything that is, that is complex and intelligent. Uh, and that's and then you get leaders like Trump and you get uh, decisions like Brexit, uh, you know, and 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 we do, we have done a very poor job of, of proofing ourselves against that tendency. Let me ask you before we run out of time. Um, there's a very large South American cultural influence um, on Mars in your book, and I was wondering if you could just talk about where that idea came from. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, it. it it comes. It goes back to the the book from two thousand seven, Black Man Thirteen, where I, I posited that one of the things they would be doing they'd be they'd be sending um, Andeans, you know, Andean um, Native Americans, to uh, Mars because one of the things, obviously, if you've got a very very thin atmosphere, then guys who are used to living at altitude 
are going to be genetically predisposed to uh, to cope with that better. So in that, the Mars prep camps in in uh, Black Man in, in thirteen are built. I mean, the Western world has built its Mars prep camps in the Andes because you get the altitude there, and also as something of the sort of bleak environment that these people will be going to. So the idea is that you've had several generations of grunt labour coming from places like Peru and Bolivia. And they've brought their culture with them. So that's that's one of the baseline cultures that operates on Mars. So a lot of the mythology, for example, a lot of the religion uh, is drawn from those people because they were the people who were there first, and they're the sort of they're the they're the ones who have built the colony, as it were, from the ground up. They're the, they're the sort of grunt labor force. Um, and in this one, there's also the idea that we've got a that there's a, a sizable contingent of Himalayans as well, so Tibetans and Nepalese also showing up. So you see an element of that as well, but. You know, the mythology was, I established the mythology back, back in 2007 with, with 13. And there I was using the Andean peoples as the, as the first settlers. So now I'm having to sort of bring the Himalayans in with the idea that they, they came at a later stage. But we kind of layer, layer a little bit of their mythology and, and culture into it as well. Uh, so that, that's the idea. Yeah. Cause I, I think one of the things about when you're, you know, when you're creating a world like that is you want it to have a, a, a very messy texture. It's got to be lots and lots of people from, you know, from various places. And clearly what they'll be importing won't be won't be something that's clearly recognizable from Earth. So so there is I mean, the religions that are on Mars in this book, they're sort of recognizable. I mean, we you can read them and you, you sort of, if you've read enough, a little bit of comparative religion, you'll 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 sort of understand what you're looking at here. But at the same time, it's very clearly not the religions that we have kicking around at the moment. You know, they have evolved. They've moved on. And personages have shifted around and been given different names and, and the mythology has changed somewhat. Well, so like in terms of these figures like Pachamama, the Pistaco and Inti and Supe, um, just sort of how did you um, research those or? Well, I'm, I'm a big, I love, I love mythology. And uh, so I've, I've, I've always done a lot of reading about it just for fun, basically. Um, and those, yeah, those were figures that, that cropped up at the time when I was doing the reading in and around the sort of uh, the, the, um, the Andean cultures and the, the the gods and mythologies that they that they have, uh, and so yeah, I took them, I mixed and matched them a little bit with with existent Christianity and and a few other little bits and pieces, and just sort of rolled them up and and threw them into the mess and let it go, you know, to let, let roll it and see where it falls basically. Um, and and they obviously, I mean, you know, religion is quite a powerful social wellspring, so it gives you a lot of a lot of metaphorical power. You can so the characters can can use that bedrock of mythology to express themselves in metaphorical fashions. And that's how you let it seep into the narrative. I mean, could you give an example of how those myths have changed uh, as a result of being transplanted to Mars in your book? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the case in point there is the fact that, um, you know, Vale, the protagonist, he is only very vaguely familiar with Christian myths. He's, he's got this, uh, he's, I mean, he's, he's originally from Australasia, uh, you know, way back when, uh, as, as a child. Um, and then he's on Mars. He's obviously been steeped in this, the, the, the mythology of, of Pachamama and, uh, and this, this sort of slightly, uh, tweaked form of, of, uh, South American religion. And so he's, he's not that cognizant with the old style Christian myths. And at one point, um, He's talking, he's talking about, uh, Pachamama's favorite son, who's obviously supposed to be Jesus and, and how he dies. And he's not very clear on how he died. Uh, and, and when someone else puts him right, cause it's someone who obviously has, he's a guy who's Armenian and he has more of a direct tradition back to it. He is, you know, he's unfamiliar with this. Uh, 
Uh, it's, it's not a it's 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 not a sort of front and center myth that he that, because I think there are very few people in the Western world who don't get Christian mythology as as things stand at the moment. But you know, fast forward a couple of centuries and put it on a different planet, and you're this becomes very much it's much more of a it's been a large parts of it have been erased or shifted or, or or moved around, and it's it's you can see the outlines of it, but but the people for the people living there in in the book, it's 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 not what we th- we would think of as Christianity. I mean, one of the bits of Martian culture in the book that I thought was really well done was that there's just this throwaway line. I mean, actually, throughout the whole book, the ground vehicles are referred to as crawlers. Yeah. And then, sort of three quarters of the way through the book. Um, Hawk and Vale just sort of mentions in passing that all ground vehicles on Mars are called crawlers because just the first vehicles were called crawlers and that just sort of got transferred to all subsequent vehicles, sort of like how the phone in your pocket bears no similarity really at all to a rotary cell phone, but the word just sort of migrates from machine to machine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that was exactly the the thing, the idea that... uh, yeah, because I mean, Mars crawler, it, it absolutely works as a, you know, as a, as you, you say to somebody, oh, see that footage of the Mars crawler going through New York the other day, and everyone knows exactly what you mean by that. So yeah, it, um, and I mean, that's, to be honest, this is, I mean, cars are called cars because they used to be called horseless carriages. I mean, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's car from carriage and carriage from horseless carriage and, uh, you know, the, so yeah, there's that sort of derivation. And what I like, and thank you for for the praise, incidentally. Uh, what I like liked about the way it played in was that you don't get the explanation for quite a long time. There is a point at which, towards the end of the book, where he mentions how one of these these particular one of these crawlers actually looks, and he goes, "It it looks it had the lineage of why we call these vehicles crawlers." And then suddenly, I think for anyone who's maybe not been thinking about it. You know, it'll be boom. Oh, right. yeah, of course, crawlers, bang, and, and you know, there you go. Um, in in the same way, yeah. But I say, I remember as a as a I don't know, I would have been in my early teens, sort of grasping the fact that car was from carriage. You know, and, uh, uh, I'd never really thought about it before, uh, but then it suddenly something something makes you think about it, and you go, oh yeah. And it was those little nuggets of, I mean, that's, I spent a lot of time doing that. I think throwaway lines are some part of my stock in trade because I think the throwaway lines are the things that illuminate, you know, um, on the quiet, as it were. So you, you know, it, it lights up something else apart from the thing itself. And, and, and hopefully if you're reading the book and enjoying it, you're like, Oh, wow. Yeah. And it, it gives you that little bit more purchase, that little embeds you a little bit deeper in, in the world. Well, yeah. And there were a couple of, cool little pieces of technology in the book I wanted to mention. One is the code flies. I thought that was really inventive. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's anyone who's ever had to, you know, get a patch or an upgrade for their computer, uh, it understands this, the idea that, that you, the, 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 the software never stands still. I think that that's an interesting thing because that's something that I became aware of, I guess, in the very early part of this century, very early 2000s, that, you know, a program, say, like Microsoft Word, that uh, it's not really a, th- a thing so much as it is a process. Uh, and it's it's working all the time. I mean, I, one of the things I remember working with, I think it was, uh, was it Word 97? It might have even been an earlier iteration. The way that you would sit with it on the page, on the, on the screen in front of you, and it would keep twitching. And you wouldn't be doing anything to it hmm. yourself, but it would keep deciding it didn't like where the line break was or moving something up the page and bringing it back down again. You're aware that this is a living thing, you know, that the code is at work. 
Uh, it's not static. You know, it's not a it's not a structure. It's a it's it's a a living, moving thing. And then the fact that it's being constantly added to. So the code, you know, the code is always evolving. It's always being given these little patches. And I was just thinking, yeah, I mean, what's going to happen when you know when genetic engineering works like that? So you never get the, the you know the gene patch that fixes whatever it is, you know, X, this thing, because there'll always be something better. So, you know, they fix you for cancer, say, but then yeah, later on they come along with something else and say, yeah, yeah, this is the, the new patch for this. So it doesn't just fix it. It also actually forces the cells to do this thing, which is really cool because then you can't even get cancer in those cells ever again. And it, the, the idea that there will be this this sort of continuing evolution of, of, of biotech, uh, yeah, but somehow you've got to get it into people. So in the same way as you, you, you've got to somehow transfer out the uh, the upgrades, similarly with, with the biotech, you've got these little post-organic mosquitoes flying around, and they carry the code activators, and they sting you, bite you, I should, well, no, sting you, actually, proboscis. They pump that shit into you, and then it goes to work on the, within the within the the gene uh, the gene tech that's already in there. It picks up the new code and goes, "All right, okay, start rewriting, guys." And blah, 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 blah. and over time, yeah, your so your lungs get more efficient, or it, it uh, you know your skin hardens up a little bit better, or retains moisture that much better. And this is going on all the time, you know. And it's annoying because, I mean. You know, talk to me about Adobe upgrades. <laughs> I remember someone once saying to me that one soon the Adobe upgrades are going to come so fast that they will come faster than the time it takes you to to load the new upgrade. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so some truth in that. So in the same way that you're constantly, you know, you get bitten a couple of times a day because there's a code fly out there with some new little piece of gene code that you haven't yet got and that you need to have, and it. It sends you out and zoom, zooms in and stings you. And of course, the problem for Vale is because he's a hibernoid and he's he's asleep very often for uh, he he goes down for four months of hibernation every year. Uh, when he wakes up, he's missed so many upgrades that the the, the code flies are on him like a cloud. You know, and sting, 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 sting. <laughs> uh, which puts him in a phenomenally bad mood at the start of the book. Which, you know, is obviously very useful for my purposes. I mean, one of these saccharide characters in the book expresses the view that the sort of inexorable logic of late stage capitalism is that the workers will eventually be genetically engineered to not cause trouble for their yeah. corporate masters. Is that something that you are worried about? Yeah, I, I am. I, I think uh, it's, it's obviously a matter for some concern. I mean, one of the things that we, you know, we, we see in late stage capitalism generally, and I mean, I, as I've said before, I don't speak as a sort of implacable enemy of capitalism. I think it's a very useful engine. But one of the one of the features we see in late stage capitalism is the way that uh, corporations move from being uh, providers and they move into the area of rent seeking, where what they're actually interested in is hegemony and influence. And we've seen very little resistance to that from you know the quarters that should be the governmental quarters that should be resisting it in fact if anything we, the, the you know corporate bodies seem to be um, getting all the encouragement they need to to just take over in these areas and obviously the ultimate extension of that will be yeah okay well let's start tweaking people people won't buy our products because we're not the product doesn't isn't the right product instead of changing our products let's just tweak the people so that they will buy them hmm. Uh, you know, there's a there's an inexorable logic to that. Once once you depart from the idea of a corporation as a useful function of society providing something, 
and you you give it as has happened in America, you you give it the the rights of an individual. You you basically call it an an entity and give it rights in the same way that individual citizens have rights. And then you you uh, allow that uh, the the purpose of this entity is is profit maximization and and without any kind of moral dimension. And that is not just allowed but lauded. Then obviously, I say the 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 the, the, impl- the implication is that these corporations will cease to function as useful cogs in in the social machine, and they will start to see themselves as exactly what we've allowed them to become, which is independent entities with self interest at their core. Uh, and that's the bottom line, basically. And yeah, initially that becomes things like manipulating people in ways that that uh, we don't find legally acceptable. It becomes yeah, rent seeking within uh, the, the corridors of power and trying to ensure that the legislation that's passed is beneficial for the corporations. Ultimately, as as genetic science moves on and, and it becomes uh, feasible to modify people in the ways we've d- discussed, then yeah, that will be the next stage. And I say how much easier to modify the customer so that they want your your product rather than trying to get your product right so that the customer will want it it uh, you know it, it makes all kind of sense if you are um you know an empowered uh, corporate corporate body that has the rights of a citizen and, and actually is is purely self-interested yeah well, that's that's pretty depressing um <laughs> And so actually, uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time. So maybe I'll give you my last question here, which is also sort of a depressing question. But, um, there's this thing in the book where the, uh, the main character is mortally wounded and there's this sort of AI assistant in his head that's talking to him and it, it runs oh, yeah. through yeah. its, uh, program of, of what all the, you know, it can, uh, comfort him or it can pretend to be a DD or it can sing lullabies to him and stuff. And yeah. so, uh, that just made me curious, uh, if you were mortally wounded yourself, would you, Want an AI there talking to you, comforting you, or would you just assume be left alone? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I think in an ideal world, you'd want you'd want a loved one with you. You'd want a, you know another human being there to hold your hand. Uh, I mean, it's a truism: we all die alone. Uh, hopefully, these days, with with you know increasing numbers of us dying, you know, in bed rather than than violently and unexpectedly, uh, you hope that yeah, you'll be. You will go peacefully and surrounded by those that love you. And so to that extent, yeah, I mean, dying is something you don't get a choice. You have to do it on your own, but at least you, you, you know, you've got people around you maybe to ease that. Uh, but given that maybe I might not have access to that, then sure, I'll take an AI. I mean, <laughs> especially if it's, I mean, the point about, um, risk in, uh, in the, the novel of Cyrus is that she's been designed, well, I say she, it, it's a machine. She, um, you know, it's, it's Vale who's given, given it this, this female persona, this female voice, but it's been designed to live in his head and basically provide a lot of the functions of a loved one. Uh, you know, and to one of those has been to ensure that he's never really fully alone. Uh, and yeah, I, there might be something to that. I mean, I, I, it did occur to me that one of the useful things, if you look at the way AI is going, especially interlocutive AI, you know, where the, we've now got these algorithms that can not quite fool people that they're talking to a person, but they can basically carry on a conversation as if they were a person by using certain verbal cues. So, one of the things that did occur to me looking at that was, yeah, we, we, we seem able to draw the comfort of, of friendship and conviviality from interacting with these machines, even though we're aware in some cases, test subjects are aware that it's a machine they're interacting with, but still 
they they respond in the way that the, the, that our own genetic program has, has set us up to respond. And it occurs to me that yeah, one one very obvious thing that al- that algorithms you know and AI would be good at is is yes, it's comforting the dying because you 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 could be there you know, and we don't, doesn't have to be. A, a deeply implanted version, as as is it, as it is in the book. I mean, you know, with the simple use of a you know a bone phone or you know some kind of um, induction uh, system, so that you can hear the voice even though you're you're you know going under, as it were. It, it should be possible to provide companionship in in someone's last hours, and uh, yeah, I think that might be a good thing. To be honest, I um, it, it, it's ethical ethically a little shaky when you start saying, well, it, you know, we can we can get Aya that will pretend to be a deity so that you'll feel better about the fact you're dying. Um, that goes into all sorts of very interesting, you know, ethical and and moral territory. But um, in terms of just having someone there, a voice in your head that is talking you talking you through it, and and Stroking your hand, basically keeping you company. I yeah, I think that would be a good thing. I think uh, you know, it'd be nice if technology meant that we didn't have to die alone, uh, even if we were functionally alone at the time of our death. Uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd say in an ideal world, I'd want another human being, someone I cared about. But uh, failing that, you know, I'd settle for the AI. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, somebody listening to this is uh, is working on that, or somebody <laughs> some scientist is. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Uh, although definitely we hope that you don't get mortally wounded anytime soon. Because, yeah, well, uh, try to avoid it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we'll have to wrap things up there. Uh, so we've been speaking with Richard K. Morgan about his new novel, Thin Air. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Richard K. Morgan for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.